My name is Mason Cambridge. I am an historian of some minor fame, probably best known for my work on the Ignition, the term given to the destruction of the great city of Korriban. A little over a year ago, a man who claimed to be a survivor of Korriban's last days tracked me down. His name was Ciro Orente, and he had worked as a diplomat and spy in the city, and he told me bluntly that my book was wrong, and he was eager to tell me what really happened. We had left Orente as he had been rescued once again by Vasker, after he had refused to join the conspiracy led by Ambassador Devanier and First Minister Altassin. Now in possession of the facts, Orente raced to the Grand Ball to try and stop the destruction. The usual caveat applies that the vast majority of this is simply what Orante has told me, mixed with articles from newspapers, diary extracts, and more, to give a little more context and information. The Grand Ball of the Congress of Korriban was already underway, and I had no idea how much time we had before the plan started, but there was something I needed, and it was at the embassy. Vasco didn't come with me, as while my time was best used trying to convince monarchs, her time was best spent actually saving people. Vasco had expected trouble at the embassy, but I didn't. The way I saw it, there were two alternatives. Either the entire embassy was aware of the plan, and therefore it would be completely empty, or none of them were, and so would carry on working as normal. Either way, there wouldn't be a problem. As it turned out, the embassy was exactly how it always was. Evidently, the staff weren't on Devonier's list of people who needed to be saved. I mumbled greetings to people who spoke to me, but didn't slow down and headed for the ambassador's office. The door was locked, but it took just a couple of good kicks to get in, and on his desk I found what I was looking for. His invitation. Obviously, Devonier wasn't going to turn up at the bloodbath that would be the grand ball. Presumably, he had found somewhere safe to wait out the violence. I was sure that my own invitation to the ball would be next to useless, not because of Altassen, but rather my confrontation with Emperor Varance. I briefly stopped by my own apartments to get something suitable to wear. After assassins, the soldiers would most likely be looking for breaches of the dress code. I rushed past the confused embassy staff and back into the street and hailed a carriage, quickly changing my clothes to look somewhat presentable on the journey. I jumped out of the carriage as we reached the palace, leaving a stack of banknotes for the driver and rushed towards the soldiers. As I expected, there was a large presence of soldiers. The rank and file were barrassed, but a number of officers in dress uniforms from a dozen different countries were mixed in. I took a deep breath, tried to steady myself, and walked forward to present my invitation. Crowds had gathered to watch the most powerful people in the world walk by, and the soldiers were busy keeping them all back. Still, there were more than enough at the doors to stop me. I handed my invitation over, and the soldier glanced at it and then looked back at me. He called over another soldier, who whispered something to him, who in turn called an officer over. The trio of soldiers spoke quietly, and then the officer turned to me. Ambassador Devonier? he asked, and I nodded. The soldier tore up the invitation and threw the shreds of paper at me. I've met his excellency, and you are not him, the officer announced, and a terrible feeling took over me. It was over. The officer announced I was under arrest and was giving orders to the effect of I was to be beaten until I confessed to whatever crimes they said I was guilty of, and I doubted they would be convinced of my real identity at this point. The officer trailed off as his attention seemed to be on the crowd. He frowned and his hand went down to his revolver. The crowd was suddenly pushing forward against the soldiers. Then there was a scream and another 
and the whole crowd surged forward. There were more screens, and the soldiers were trying to control the crowd. I don't know if someone actually gave the order, but soldiers started firing. Then I saw one, a tall, gaunt woman. She was pushed over the barriers and was quickly on her feet. She looked in my direction, an empty but strangely intense look in her eyes. In the few seconds I had to look at her, I took in her awful appearance. The myriad cuts and bruises, the disheveled and stained clothing, the strange grey colour of her skin. She was infected. The officer who had just arrested me strode forward, his gun in his hand, shouting at people. The infected woman's gaze transferred to him, and she sprinted forward and launched herself through the air at him. The pair collapsed on the ground, and the woman sunk her teeth into his neck. I was stunned. The zombie had ran. Despite Devonier explaining of the different kinds of zombies, it was still hard to comprehend, and I realized the great threat they posed. The soldiers had forgotten all about me and were trying to deal with the much more serious threat. I took my opportunity and ran into the palace. Start a report of Dr. Vea Drusus, medical doctor working for Heneria. I have submitted my official 452-page report to the final committee, but as requested, have written this precy of my team's findings. Over the course of four years, we have worked with 92 infected individuals, researching everything from the longevity of the infected to their unique qualities. The first thing to be made clear is that the infected are neither dead or undead, whatever that ambiguous word means. This is a myth that misunderstands the entire nature of the sickness and is based purely on superstition. We purposely infected a number of recently deceased corpses, and there was no change to their status. The infected continue to have many of the same physiological processes we do. They breathe, they sleep, they even sweat, the difference being they do these things far less. The human heart rate is around 70 beats per minute, but the infected human, less than 10. This is part of what provides them many of their seemingly unnatural qualities. People report the infected walking underwater, unperturbed by the lack of oxygen. In our studies, we killed three of the infected by drowning, but it does take longer. The term zombie is almost as bad considering it arises from folk stories with no standard description and, again, confers supernatural abilities. Another common misconception is that the only way to kill an infected human is to decapitate them or destroy the brain. The infected will succumb to serious wounds, blood loss, etc. It just takes a lot longer. Any major injury to vital organs will kill them. Certainly, the infected show no regard for injuries sustained and seem either unable to feel pain or it offers no deterrent. The infected will walk through fire to reach their target. In regards to strength and speed of an infected human, strength is based entirely on the strength of the person who has been infected. All infected humans move slowly, and it has been hypothesized by some members of my team that this is to conserve energy. Stamina is another matter altogether, and the infected will walk for hours, even days, seemingly without tiring. Infected humans not given food or water seem to show no ill effects. 
There is much anecdotal evidence from legionnaires of bodies of infected humans that have simply fallen apart, the body not repairing or maintaining itself, but this process can take years. Interestingly, despite most infected humans eating human flesh, this does not seem to be for sustenance as the food is never properly digested. There is some slight variation in the cognitive abilities of infected humans, but in all cases is greatly diminished. For example, no infected human we tested was ever able to open a door. When posed with even the most simple of cognitive tasks, the infected are completely unable to find a solution. Postmortems carried out on the infected show massive deterioration in brain tissue. The infected lose all linguistic capabilities and, despite some reports, do not even communicate with one another. The closest to communication we have observed is that some infected humans will emit loud moans when encountering the uninfected, and this could be a signal to other infected humans. Transmission of the infection is primarily through bite wounds. Although exposure to infected blood also works, it is less likely to occur outside laboratory conditions. However, not all bite wounds will lead to outright infection with some subjects showing virtually no effects and could potentially mean they possess some kind of natural immunity. Most who are bitten but do not turn suffer horribly for some time. Some people fully recover from this, while others show persistent and, we suspect, lifelong effects. A great number simply die. The time taken for a person to display full infection varies, in a similar way to how humans would react to any infection. Healthy and strong people typically last longer than the weak. Again, time to full infection depends on the severity of the wound. A bite to an appendage will be less potent than one to the torso, neck, or head. Time taken to full infection ranged 90 minutes to several days. While we have not researched this specifically, the idea of a cure to the infection is without basis. As stated already, there are massive physiological changes that occur. Whole organ systems effectively shut down, doing irreparable damage. Removing the infection that allows them some approximation of life would cause certain death. Finally, it is believed the most effective way to handle an outbreak would be immediate quarantine backed up with overwhelming force. An outbreak must be isolated as soon as possible. In certain situations, we would advise the wholesale destruction of outbreak areas, even including those who have not been infected, as trying to screen those from the infected will inevitably slow down efforts to contain the infection. As our research has concluded, we have destroyed all infected specimens, but maintain a reserve of blood samples should further research be needed in the future. That was a document Ciro gave me and as you can see, purports to be part of a report on scientific study into the undead. As such, it contravenes any number of international laws, but I'm sure Hanaria would respond with their stock response that, as they were the only country not invited to help write those laws, they don't consider themselves bound to them. The research is interesting, but I had to think about whether to share this particular document. First, I would not want to encourage any further research, but also that when you think about what Hanaria must have done in the course of these experiments, it is very troubling. 
The following descriptions of attacks on key points and individuals across the city by the Brotherhood and other agents of the conspirators are taken from interviews Mr. Orante claims to have had with survivors. He could offer no supporting evidence, and for most, did not name the specific source. I have also taken the liberty of rewording some of the accounts for the benefit of the audience. The details, such as they are, remain the same. We cover the 14 Bridge. A dozen soldiers, that's not including the four men manning the two machine guns. There's a strong gate that was built to stop mobs, and the most we usually had to deal with were drunks or tourists who had wandered into the wrong part of the town or accidentally crossed one of the less obvious borders. On the night of the ball, we were on alert. These people like a riot, you know? We had heard a few gunshots in the distance, but eh, that didn't really mean much. There's a lot of crime in the city. So these two carriages come up to the bridge. They're not your gentleman's carriage, or even one for hire. Big things they were. We stopped them as usual. Donovan went to see the papers, and then he was on the ground. And there was blood. Men left from the carriage firing the guns. I think I let loose a single round and then drove straight into the river. I had meant to get more men, come back and finish the bastards off, but by the time I got out of the water, things were too far gone. So I was on the Northern Harbor. You know, small one. The breeze one. It's too well guarded for what I was doing. Hindsight! It might just have been one ship, but when you saw the guns, you didn't want to be anywhere near them. And yes, I know they fired blank shells into the Northern Harbor, but still, it felt safer. We were halfway through loading this ship when there was explosion. Shit, at first we thought hindsight had opened fire. But then... One of my guys realized it was from some crates. It was bad, and I was just stunned. I actually went over to help the guards. Can you believe that? It was brutal. Then there was another explosion. And another. Smaller than the first one, but still, serious. And even if it wasn't hindsight, I knew that it was an attack, and we had to get out of there. I ran to my ship and started moving, but it wasn't over even then. These men were running through the harbor just shooting people. They were boarding the boats. It was a massacre. I saw the other two ships make it out of the harbor. I don't know what happened, but it wasn't zombies that did it. Yes, I was with Prince Farron. He was supposed to be at the ball, but that wasn't really his scene. He wanted to have his own party. There were a couple of foreigners with him. Not princes, but some kind of blue bloods. I think this was his version of diplomacy. He had his faults, did Varen, but he wasn't an idiot. We were having a drink. Varen was playing cards. Winning, I think. And then there was this crash from downstairs, and there were shouts. We had this guy, Callow, on the door. Big, ugly man, but good at what he did. Tough. And they... And they just gutted him. And then they were running up the stairs. 
Varen was furious and had already drawn his sword when they burst in, and they just started shooting. I think there was five of them, and they just kept firing until the guns were empty. Varen was down, but not dead, and one of them stabbed him. And I mean viciously, just over and over again, just to make sure he was dead. Somehow, I hadn't been hit. I suppose I wasn't a target. But I don't think they wanted any witnesses. I jumped through the window. I broke my arm when I hit the ground. I was cut all over from the glass, but I just ran and kept running. This this soldier nearly shot me. He thought I was a zombie. I was an engineer. Hanerian, originally. I left when a lot of people did and got work with Bearstone. They had need of our technical skill. They wanted to hire every engineer, scientist, and inventor who left Hanerian. Sometimes just to keep them out of the hands of the Dravens. I was part of the telegraph team, and you might say there weren't any telegraphs in Korriban, and you'd be wrong. There was one. Hidden away in a bunker under Bear's command center. And it could only communicate with one other telegraph, the one on hindsight. All this money and time and effort to build it, and to keep it hidden just so they could talk to a single ship, 50 feet offshore. The entire Bear's defense of the city and their presence in the area was based on that one ship, so they wanted to be able to send clear orders as quickly as possible. You know, they also had semaphore and flares and lots of other complicated systems and patterns, but they wanted this one too. We had to lay a cable underwater. That's not too hard, but to do it with no one knowing? That's very hard. And then, of course, sometimes hindsight left the harbor, so the cable had to disconnect and then be reconnected when it came back. Not easy. Not easy at all. I know these days people do it all the time. The whole world is connected. We invented this stuff. The evening of the Grand Ball, I was at Bear's Command. They wanted a few engineers on hand 24 hours a day. We didn't complain. We got paid well and had nothing to do but sit around and drink coffee. So we're sitting. Talking. Then there is this commotion. And they bring in this guy. He's got a wound on his head, covered in blood, talking half embarrassed, half in Iridian, like he's just crazy, shouting, panicking. But he just kept saying, zombie, zombie, zombie. The officers start having this conversation, and, and, and they've gone pale. They're scared, and they start talking about what they're going to do. One of them gets up and heads towards the safe in the corner of the room. Another officer stops him, and the five or six of them in the room start arguing. Now, I couldn't tell you exactly what they were talking about, but it was serious. And somehow or other, a lot of people were going to die. Eventually, one of the officers reaches a safe, unlocks it, and goes to the other telegraph. One of the other officers has started crying at this point. A brief message was sent to Hindsight. There was a response and another message sent. The officer sitting at the telegraph buried his head in his hands. That was when the gun went off. The injured man was carrying two pistols and gunning down everyone in the room. It only lasted a few seconds, but all the bare soldiers were either dead or dying. Already, there were soldiers trying to break down the door. 
the man calmly reloaded his guns and then aimed at the telegraph, emptying one pistol into it. He then turned to me, and I was sure that was the end when the door burst open. The man turned to face the bare soldiers, but was brought down by a barrage of bullets. It seems that any obstacle to the conspiracy playing out his plan was eliminated. Bridges that could have stopped the undead were cleared of soldiers. The northern harbor was destroyed, presumably to stop anyone escaping, and prominent individuals who weren't at the ball, like Prince Varen, were simply murdered. As for the engineer in the Balrus telegraph station, the next episode will explain what that was about. The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Cambridge was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at theweirdtalespodcast.podbean.com. See where Arente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at Graham NY, G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y. Dr. Via Drusus was played by Marnie Warner. Find Marnie on Twitter at Marnie underscore McFly. The anonymous Draven soldier was played by Zane Sexton. The anonymous smuggler was played by Chris Anderson. Find Chris on Twitter at LithiumBlues88 or email LithiumBluesVA at yahoo.com. Anonymous companion of Prince Varen was played by Narelli Chef. Find Narelli on Twitter at FirewordSparkler. The anonymous Hanarian engineer was played by Kyle Nishimura. Find Kyle on Twitter at SplitSeams or contact via email kdnishimura at me.com. <laughs>